This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Sachin Lati. Now, as you will hear when we recorded this, I was sick as a dog, so I apologize in advance for the slight change in audio quality and enthusiasm and energy on my end. But that being said, it was an incredible conversation. So we discuss a host of topics from his childhood in India, growing up in the Sikh faith, his journey into law enforcement, working the Canadian border, jiu-jitsu, mental health, his attempt to break the running record across Canada, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sachin Lati. Enjoy. All right, well, Such, I want to firstly apologize for my voice. Um, I have this brutal cold thing. People ask me, oh, have I tested for COVID? I'm like, no, I've never named my viruses. I'm not going to start now. But uh, <laughs> it's not a baby. But yeah. it has been pretty brutal. My last interview I just put out, the interview I was had a great clear voice, but the intro, I sounded like this. So uh, Darth Vader, as my son put it. So I apologize for the voice and welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's an it's a actual great pleasure and honor, so thank you. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this morning? I am in South Surrey slash White Rock, British Columbia, Canada. So it's um, approximately ten, five to ten minute drive over to the U.S. and um, approximately two and a half hour drive north of Seattle. Brilliant. Yeah. All right, well, I like to start the the beginning you know your origin story but i'd actually like to go a couple of generations back and then we'll walk through so talk to me about some of the war heroes you have in your lineage and then we'll kind of walk through forward to your parents and your birth absolutely so my um my great grandfather served in the british indian army in world war one um he served with um distinction i mean he he, he served in various theaters of war in north africa <clears throat> and he, um, you know, he's, he started, the, I guess, I mean, I'm not sure how, how long before my great grandfather, because I guess that's as far as I know. Um, but, it, um, culturally for my family, it's a, a lot of, um, service has been at the forefront. So my great grandfather and then my great uncle, he was, uh, he, he was also in the British Indian army and eventually in the Indian army. And he, um, he was actually quite instrumental in helping form the British Indian, uh, sorry, not British, sorry, my apologies, um, military intelligence in India. So he, um, he's, he was 
quite um, quite distinction. He had quite a bit of distinction in his service. And then my my grandfather, um, <clears throat> he served as a police officer, and he was a superintendent of Punjab Police in Punjab, Northern India. And um, so he served his entire career. He, uh, I mean, with great distinction, he received the Police Medal of Honor uh, from the President of India. So um, then from there, my dad um, has an older brother, and he served in the Indian Army, and he retired as a colonel, and he served in various different theaters as well. And my dad was the black sheep. <laughs> he was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> he had a couple options from uh, my grandfather, actually. Um, had, gave him two options. So it was my dad and my, my uncle, and then my dad had four younger sisters, so it was, they had a family of six. And um, my dad was never that guy. He always wanted to do something different. and He actually wanted to be an actor, wanted to do Bollywood, the whole kind of thing, right? But as you can imagine in India, that's not like a, <laughs> you're coming from a village in a small town in, in northern India. Um, that wasn't uh, a career choice that he had an option for. And he was a very artistic guy, like reading, writing and all that kind of stuff. But my grandfather gave him two options as it was the custom back then. Uh, join the military policing of some level of service or leave. <laughs> so my dad left and um, he... he Emigrated to England, and he he moved to England. Um, ooh, he's eighty now, so sixty one years ago. Uh, he he moved to England December twenty fifth, sixty one years ago. And um, you know, I've heard all the stories uh, of uh, how my dad managed um, in those environments. So there's a lot of, I don't know. Now that I look back on it, I learned a lot from that. Even though when he was telling me these stories, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to hear this. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, you kind of hear those things as a kid, right? Like, oh, the struggle, doing that, working all nights. And uh, now I kind of, I have a great deal of respect for that, man. Like my dad, when he first moved in England, didn't speak a lick of English, right? And um, <clears throat> he hadn't seen snow before. And he landed on Christmas Day in, in, in England. So he, he saw snow. He's like, what's going on here? Uh, he hadn't seen a person, well, hadn't seen a Caucasian person in real life. <laughs> so that was a surprise for him. And it, you, these little, small little stories you hear from people, like you don't get to actually hear, at least I never did. Um, you know, talking about how, seeing a woman in a skirt, how that affected it, like all these different types of things that he'd never seen before. And, um, but he, he had one purpose at that time in his, and he took it to heart from his, from his dad. Um, was uh, get an education. So that was the fundamental thing that he needed to do was make his dad proud, essentially. And um, he ended up, uh, you know, eventually getting into university. He went to University of Wales, Cardiff. And um, he, uh, yeah, he uh, he worked, went to university for four years, <clears throat> worked in a factory every single night after school, and then would do it again in the morning for four years. So he'd work all day, or sorry, go to school all day and then work in a factory all night and then go back to school. He did that for four years. And he hadn't had any communication with anyone, any family or anything, because back then it was just writing letters and that, right? So he he um, he ended up graduating, and he ended up getting a scholarship, and he ended up uh, as one of the first minority people um, getting a master's in electrical engineering in, in the program that he was in at that time. And that was a huge kind of achievement um, in our family at that time. And so, you know, when he did, he achieved that and he ended up uh, after five years going back to India to visit his family. And it was, he was a culture shock for him because he didn't recognize anyone. Like he had four sisters that were all 
grown up essentially. And, you know, listening to these stories, man, it's like kind of, it kind of feeds me a little bit too, in terms of like, you know, man, he grinded and he worked real hard and he moved on and he's, you know, there's a lot of other things that happened in his life, but you know, it was good. And then my mom, she didn't have any of that kind of lifestyle. <laughs> my mom uh, left in India when she was 11 and moved to England. Uh, she went to Birmingham, I think. And um, she grew up in England and my, you know, my uncle was born in England and, and uh, my brother was born in England, like a lot of family, um, extended family in England now. But my mom had a connection to the Bollywood industry, like in India. Her, her, um, her older brother, or half older brother was a movie director and he was quite um, prolific and he did a lot of work. And so she had that kind of vibe to her. And then, um, yeah, they met and got married and moved to Canada and, here we are. <laughs> Brilliant. But yeah, that's the the, 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 so my family history in terms of military and, um, and service has always been at the forefront. And my dad had always talked about those things, talked about his dad, talked about his grandfather, talked about, um, you know, my great uncle and, um, how they were pioneers and how they were trendsetters and how they were people that would wanted to do something positive for the environment around them. And, you know, I, I always heard those things. I just didn't quite understand how to apply them early on in life. Uh, I struggled quite a bit myself with, you know, finding my way. And, um, you know, really the last few years has kind of been a lot of that. Now, with your dad's immigration story, when you think of racism in the U.S., the first kind of group that you think of is towards African-Americans. When you think of it in... In England, I would say it was probably more East Asian, Indian Pakistanis that were the brunt mostly. You had the wind rush, and obviously that caused a lot of um, tension. It shouldn't have, but you know that, that brought out the racist element of some people in the UK. I don't think it was many, to be honest, but it's a real thing. Was there were there any dark sides to his immigration, or, or was he embraced by the community? Oh, no, absolutely, for sure. He had difficulty finding a place to rent. No one would rent to him. Um, overt racism and getting a job was kind of hard in certain areas as well. Um, so it was almost, you know, you had to kind of find the people that would be supportive of, you know, of you. So naturally you would go find people that were similar to you and you would try to, you know, find apartments or find work in those sort of areas. But I think my dad struggled with racism most of his life, I think. Right. Like, you know, going from England and then going to Canada and then going to the because we did also live in the U.S. And, you know, we lived in Dallas, Texas for a number of years. And, you know, um, now even for me, reflecting back, I remember certain times of um, racist kind of interactions. But I was so oblivious, you know, I was unless I really, really thought about it. You know what? And now that I think about it now. I could have just blocked a lot of it out, you know, like a lot of the things that may have happened. I just kind of moved on. Like I, I just didn't let it um, enter my head, but he, you know, a lot of things did affect me as well, but you no, know, I for sure remember some of those stories, but also even in Canada stories and in the United States, we've had stories in terms of overt racism, skinheads getting jumped. Um, my dad being jumped with my brother. Um, and my brother was a young kid at the time skin has jumping them and and you know just uh, things that shouldn't happen uh happen and um but having said that you know my dad never <laughs> he never gave up he kept kind you know kept working doing his thing and so i guess um i learned i learned a lot from my dad now that i you know reflect back on it i don't 
and I'm, and I'm sure I think I'm going to probably talk to him about that and let him know I haven't really said those things to him. And so thank you for bringing up the question. <laughs> no problem at all. What it reminds me of, um, a, a basically a meme, for lack of a better word, that I shared quite a while ago, and I talk about it sometimes on here. It had a, a I think it was about six Indian Sikh pilots in front of uh, Spitfires. Mm. And the, the tongue-in-cheek... Um, you know, wording above it said, bloody Indians coming over here, flying our spitfires and killing the Nazis. Because <laughs> yeah. that's the thing, when you remove the ridiculousness of whatever prejudice there is, it makes no sense, you know. And then I'm sure the pe- the poor, you know, Sikhs and some of the other East um, Asian countries, the people from those, uh, you know, ethnicities, were probably scooped together with all... Oops, smack my microphone then. Scooped together with all the, you know, the Muslims and all these other people and all blamed for 9-11, you know what I mean? By, again, these closed-minded, blinkered, prejudiced few that have the loudest mouth and project like that's how the whole country thinks, but it doesn't. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, after 9-11, there were um, instances of Sikhs with turbans being killed and in, in light of 9-11. And look, Muslim or not or whoever, none of that should happen either way. But, you know, that just shows a, 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 a an extreme lack of knowledge and understanding by the populace of who are who who do we live with, who are our neighbors. And, um, you know, for me, I've always prided myself to a certain degree that I try to understand various different cultures and who they are and why they are and maybe share my experiences and we have a better understanding moving forward. And especially in, in the law enforcement communities or, or first responder communities, it's super important, I think. To, to understand those things so you can make help people feel more comfortable in those environments and um yeah it's uh it's been an interesting 20 years actually if you kind of look at a lot of things that's kind of been going on i mean even just from my own experiences that i've experienced over the last 20 years it doesn't seem to like there were overt racist kind of things that i've experienced and even to this day, it still kind of happens from time to time. But those things, I think, happen, man. Like, it's just people are people to a certain degree. Not everyone's going to be amazing. And I've just kind of functioned in not being a victim in those circumstances and just kind of moving on and, and getting on with getting on kind of. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, even there were, you know, attacks on Asian people that basically in these extremist you know fucking idiot minds were like well you're the reason for COVID-19 no Steve it's ridiculous <laughs> the it, guy that owns the, the Chinese takeaway is not responsible for the virus and here's the thing um, a lot of I mean it's not a secret a lot of immigrants are the infrastructure of the country right like we um, not we anymore but like people come into the country for a better life right and they don't want to make the life worse for people they want to make it better and they try to do it the best they can with the information that they have and that's that's all you can do and i mean i can only speak to my experiences and i saw that experience in my household with my parents and their friends they were all positive members of society in every country we've lived in they've all been contributing members and really you know actually philanthropic people that want to elevate the communities in whichever way so I just think, you know, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more messaging things out and, and continuously having these types of conversations, I think, over time, those things get better and better. 
Absolutely. I, I refer to this and it's, it's the right time of year now, but if you watch Love Actually, the beginning and then the closing sequences at the airport, and you see how diverse, I'm assuming it's Heathrow or Gatwick, you know, the, yeah. the uh, arrivals area is, you know, and there's people from African nations and, you know, Indian and, and all yeah. over the world. And that is not the small town I grew up in. It was a lot less diverse. There was diversity, but it was definitely imbalanced. Not that it should be a perfect ratio either. But yeah, London, yeah. where I live later in my life, is this beautiful tapestry of all these different, you know, cultures and, and races. When I went to, to do a sports course in Swindon, which is kind of the southwest, I, f I wish I could forget the one guy's name, but the other guy, Haki, Hakaram, was, was Sikh. So when you actually then have friends who are from different cultures, you start seeing and they start teaching you, you know, this is what mm -hmm. we believe in, this kind of is related to Buddhism and this is mm -hmm. why we, you know, cover our head. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating. But that to me is England. This is kind of facade that England is a bunch of blue-eyed skinheads running around. No, England is this amazing country because we went and technically fucked over two-thirds of the planet at one point. So all those men and women, you know, come to our country and now we are a reflection of, of I would say, a, a pretty decent reflection of the entire planet in one little country. I think so, man. It's pretty cool too because I've been to, I mean, I've, obviously I've been to England a few times and I've ex <clears throat> what I've saw, what I've seen in England that I thought was pretty amazing was how integrated various different cultures and and people are into the fabric of society. It's pretty cool, man. Like, so, you know, you go out for, and I'm not a big clubber or nightclub guy anymore, but when I was, and I'd be in England, I mean, after what, what's the first thing you do after the bar? You go to like a kebab place, mm -hmm. right? Yep. That's a thing. That's a, and it's not just brown or Indo Asian people doing it. It's, Oh yeah, we all do that. And we go to the curry house to, too. We go to Indian yeah. takeaway a lot of times. Yeah, and if you're going to the pub, the pub's going to have some various different ethnic foods there, not because they're trying to be something. They're, that's just part of the fabric of the food uh, of society. Kind of like if you go to Texas, Tex-Mex is just part of the, you know, it's part of the culture. It's just the way things are. And it's cool to see that over a period of time, the integration of that. And I remember 20, 25 years ago, Actually, maybe even no, 30 some odd years ago, and I was living in Toronto, you know, 12, oh, I was 13 years old, in and around there, and I had a friend of mine. And we always talked about, I used to listen to a lot of Indian music, Punjabi music, Bhangra music. And we, we would always say as kids, as 11, 12 year olds, oh, it'd be kind of cool to see if this kind of music would trans, you know, transcend into mainstream, if that would ever happen. And we would just kind of like BS each other. And, and 20 years later, it's, it's kind of a thing where mm -hmm. a lot of different music has entered the fabric of, of, of uh, various different cultures. And, you know, it's that's awesome to see because it keeps an open mind for people. You know, when you have like music or food, it's like a gateway drug to other cultures. Right. And um, you're more receptive to those things. And it's I don't know, it's it's pretty cool to see. I think. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's great you know, listening to so many people that have come on the show you know, the origin story, their parents or grandparents or great-great-grandparents are from everywhere, Poland and, you know, Tibet, I mean, all these places. And so it does paint the picture, as you said, I mean, we are a nation of immigrants. But, you know, if you start pigeonholing the immigrant and you, you hit you know, the nail on the head, I don't know if the culture's changed more recently. But when I was younger, if you were black, Asian, whatever, and you asked someone from England of whatever ethnicity, what are you? They'd be like, uh, I'm British. You know what I mean? That that was it. 
Now, are there some pockets again that kind of, you know, refuse to to assimilate to this diverse culture? Of course, but I think it's the same here. You know, there's some people that are like, well, I'm German Irish. Like, no, you're American, mate. You know, I'm I'm you know from England, so I'm English, but I've served the U.S. for 20 years. My son is American. He's got Cherokee blood. He's got English blood. He's got all these, but he is an American. And I think that's the problem. Is Maybe, as you said, initially from people finding their own people for more of a kind of, you know, strength by numbers element, we've allowed now to be divided and conquered rather than realize that we're all one, you know, pieces of this massive jigsaw puzzle that is the U.S. And I think it's pretty, I mean, I guess for you, like you, like you said, you speak to so many different people and and I've been only recently speaking to more people and maybe, maybe you can give me some insight onto this or maybe add to this, but I've noticed from me talking to various different people that um, even however, wherever they're from, like 10,000 kilometers away, whatever, right? Like it doesn't matter. Um, but I've noticed that once we start having conversations, we are more similar than we are not. And and, at, and that goes across the board, like, like in every sort of aspect, we're very similar. Like um, not too long ago, maybe a couple months ago, I was in Toronto, Ontario, and um, I was uh, I was going to go run a marathon in, in Toronto, and and one of the I wanted to do a pod, you know, share the story, and I, I was trying to engage with some people on a podcast out there, and I ended up meeting with some guys that um, you know, smally background, right, and um, um, immigrants to the country, you know, maybe second generation, um, and so I had no idea of what kind of conversations we would have, and and when I engaged with them. I didn't even know what kind of podcast and what they normally did or what kind of conversations they would have. I just thought, Hey man, it'd be kind of cool to talk to some people that I haven't talked to before. So let's see what happens. So when I got there, I was pleasant, pleasantly surprised, I guess. I, I, I don't know if that's the right way of saying it. I was just happy um, <clears throat> because they were like-minded, you know, they were, they just want to do something positive for the community around them. Um, and they're using their platform to do it. And that's no different than, say, you, me, or anyone else who's just trying to do something positive for the community around us. And it doesn't matter if you're from Somalia, from Canada, from wherever. We all have the same wants and needs, essentially, right? And so for me, going there was eye-opening and it helped broaden my mind a bit more, too, because I, I've had pretty much a, you know, a closed mind to many things for many years and I have been, you know, I've had a wall up for many years to protect myself from various different things. And and I've noticed that I've I've deprived myself from many opportunities by doing that over the years, which is I'm not regretting anything. I'm just that's reality. And um, but now moving forward, I feel so happy and blessed that like I've had since January many, many opportunities of engaging with different types of people that I would never spoken to before. And I'm learning so much right now and I'm getting to see that we're so similar. Like yeah, everyone has their own sort of skill sets and ideas and whatever, but we all generally kind of want the same thing. And it's, and it's cool to see that. It's actually pretty cool to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've observed with a lot of these divisions, you know, masks or Chinese conspiracies or, you know, pro police and whatever it is. The, the wedge is driven because people are highlighting the 10% that they disagree with rather than the 90% commonalities that we have. And, and that's why I don't think we've had a leader in decades in this country, you know, and to, to 
in 700 episodes, I've had people that are, you know, all over the spectrum, some very left-leaning, some very right-leaning, a lot of people more in the middle where I stand. But as those people kind of start leaning towards their extremes, you just kind of pull them back, you know, safety, you know, roof over your kids' heads, clothes on their back, education, I mean, all the basic things. And you can have an entire conversation with someone. But if you ask them about Sandy Hook or, you know, vaccine, they might go off on one. But that is, I mean, Sandy Hook's not irrelevant. But, you know, at that moment, let's talk about all the things that we agree on. We can explore the boundaries a little bit. But this is, you know, this isn't what happens. You have to pick a side. You've got to pick a label and then fight the other side. And you break down communication then. And the wall goes up really quickly with people too, right? When you're when the topic is something kind of um, hot, and I like I don't try to engage in those conversations. Like, no, that's not true. I engage in those conversations, but from a perspective of not picking either side and keeping an open mind, where I'm just asking questions. Because I honestly, man, like for me, I used to be balls deep in that kind of stuff. Oh, this politics, that, and. and at the end of the day, it drove me nuts. And I wasn't getting, it wasn't, there was no resolution to anything. And, and I started realizing, look, man, I can't affect that change. What can I do there? Like, I'm, unless I do something and go down that road, I can't really, you know, I'm just complaining then and I'm just getting fired up. So, you know, I wanted to do something where I can actually do something, where I can act personally myself, I can affect change. And, and through that process, um, I found that to be way better, like because then I can do something. I'm like I'm just sitting around talking and whining and complaining, and this person didn't do that, that person didn't do that. Okay, forget it, man. Let's find some people that are like-minded that kind of think the same way, and maybe we can help each other kind of achieve certain things. And and through that process, I've noticed that I've become um, less anxious, right? Because I can. I'm working towards something and I'm trying to affect positivity and doing what I was doing before. I don't think I was optimizing or maximizing that at all. Absolutely. Well, let's start at the beginning of kind of your timeline now then. So you mentioned about England and India, where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about um, what your, your mother and father were doing career wise at that point. Sure. I was born in London, Ontario, Canada in 1978. So I'm 44 and, um, so, and I have an older brother. He's three years older than I. And um, my dad was an electrical engineer. And he was working in London, Ontario at the time, you know, doing his thing. My mom was staying at home at that time. And eventually we moved to Toronto and grew up in Toronto. My dad was working. Um, he was working as a, at that time as a director of research and development for a company called Amdahl, which is a telecommunications company. And he was doing that. <clears throat> and my mom would work, you know, maybe part-time here and there or, you know, but nothing substantial. Um, but at that time, you know, it started getting pretty tough financially because um, the interest rates were quite high. And my dad was getting involved with the buying of houses and, you know, um, trying to upgrade because a lot of his friends were doing a lot of that too. And, and so, um, yeah. Yeah, but not even build it, like not even um, trying to fix up a house, buy a house and then flip it after. Like, yeah, just, you know, exactly. <laughs> and so a lot of his friends were doing that and, and they were all like professionals too. Like my dad was an engineer, he was a professional engineer and a lot of his friends were doing it. So he's, he started doing it and trying to, he was chasing the money, right? He was chasing the dollar, he was chasing these things. And we had an amazing house. Like we had a 
six thousand square foot house, and you know, it was um, um, custom made marble floors, like all the things, right? They couldn't afford it though. <laughs> it was like 18, 19% interest on 700,000 or whatever it was, right? And uh, they were grinding, it was hard. So, a lot of then started seeing a lot of stress, right? And it was coming out a lot, right? So, my dad, you know, would drink and, um, you know, he wasn't a huge drinker up until, you know, maybe like in, in, you know, when he started feeling the stressors, he started drinking a bit more. And so, you know, we would see various, you know, I saw and my brother saw various, um, uh, interactions between my dad and my mom that weren't pleasant to see. Right? And then, um, but still, you know, doing the thing. And then eventually my dad ended up getting transferred by that company to another company in, in Texas. It's called Fujitsu, another telecommunication company. And he was, uh, again, director of the research and development there. And for him, it was a pretty lucrative position. And But he was in Dallas, Texas at the time. And my, my brother and myself and my mom were in, in Canada. So we hadn't moved yet. So that was a hot mess because my brother was in high school. And I'm like in around 12. And my brother was not like, um, it was a lot of fights, a lot of, you know, a lot of problems happening. And my mom couldn't manage it. And um, so my dad, you know, my brother and I were just kind of doing whatever we kind of wanted. <laughs> it wasn't pleasant for my mom, I can imagine. And then eventually... Um, my brother got into, well, my brother used to get in a lot of fights, used to get in a lot of gang stuff and, you know, these types of things. So I saw a lot of that and I was a pretty, like most kids, pretty innocent. So I, I wanted to be more like my brother, I guess, because I thought that was badass and whatever, right? And um, so that was probably the beginning of learning the wrong way to do things, I think. And um, so, you know, we moved to Dallas eventually when, uh, when, um, you know, after about a year, my dad was working down there and he was still under a great deal of stress and a lot of things happening. And, and uh, anyways, long story short, we're, we're living down there now for about a year. I'm going to high school in, in grade nine in Plano, Texas. And um, man, that was rough. <laughs> as a as a kid who had no clue, like, you know, I was doing pretty good in Toronto. I had some friends, whatever, and then moved down to Dallas, Plano, no less. And Plano was, a, look, for anyone listening, um, Plano's a great town uh, it, it has a lot of um money there businesses and you know it's, it's it's a nice little city there and anyway so i'm uh i'm living there with my parents and my dad and eventually my dad um you know he was on a business visa or not business but a, like a, a permit or, or the correct documentation to work in the states and eventually he got laid off though right before getting the green card so what that ended up happening. We just threw everything into uh, a hot mess because my dad was in the process of getting the green card, then he gets laid off, and then immigration wouldn't. It just canceled everything. So now I'm in high school. My brother's in grade twelve, and now we we can't be there. <laughs> and but we didn't. My dad at that time didn't have enough funds. He had to make a decision: do we move back to Canada, or do we just stay here and figure out how to make it work? And my dad essentially picked the lesser of two evils and whatever severance he ended up getting, he used that money to buy a business in, in Dallas. And um, so he was an engineer. Um, and this is what we're talking 30 years ago. So my dad was probably about 50, right? Just gets laid off, getting paid 130 grand a year back then, right? Doing pretty good. And maybe more, I can't even remember. Whatever it would be. And um, he gets laid off. And for my dad, that was a big kick in the junk because he was – supporting all of us and 
he was also a lot of, as you can imagine, the culture is a lot about saving face and, you know, not being embarrassed and all this kind of stuff. So he made a decision to use that money. He got into maybe getting a severance about 100K or something like that. And he used that money to buy a restaurant. <laughs> and he's never had a business in his life. He was an engineer. And he was like, yeah, I kind of like restaurants. Let me buy a restaurant and see what happens. And it wasn't an Indian restaurant. It was an Italian one. <laughs> so... um my dad buys an Italian restaurant and he's like, okay, let's, he, he didn't know a thing. So he grinded it out, spent time trying to learn. And he ended up figuring out how to manage this restaurant and he made it um, successful. He, he made it a success of it. Um, but there were a lot of, um, a lot of issues in making it a success. So like, you know, he wasn't around. My mom wasn't around because she was working in there all the time. My brother's like, screw this. I'm out. He ends up uh, after graduating, moving back to Canada, go to university. So I'm now I'm pretty much just on my own, kind of doing my own thing, trying to manage my own self. And um, my parents are working. I ended up having to work there, too. So I ended up working there back and forth and going to school. And for me, I was getting picked on so much in school, like in grade nine, when I first started, like I was the only brown kid and you know, I didn't know what was going on. I'm getting my ass kicked all the time by these guys or whatever. And so my parents eventually, you know, started saying, hey, man, we got to put you into something. You got to, like, stay busy or something. So they're like, oh, I do basketball. I, I don't fucking know how to play basketball. I don't know how to dribble a ball, man. Like, <laughs> So I go into basketball. I try out for the basketball team. I get cut, like, no surprise. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't played sports ever, right? Like I didn't play any sports in like growing up because my parents never thought of those things. It wasn't a, a normal thing to do for us. I didn't even know how to skate and come from Canada. I don't, I still don't know how to skate, <laughs> but I'll change that anyway. So, um, I, uh, yeah, we end up, um, we're there. My parents are uh, running the restaurant. I'm getting bullied, picked on. And then eventually my brother moves back to Canada to go to university. And then I, um, uh, I, um, I ended up joining the wrestling team because that was the only sort of thing that I thought I could probably start doing. And the wrestling coach at the time was um, really receptive to trying to bring new people on to the team that didn't know anything about wrestling. And so he became like a second dad to me, Coach Webb. And um, I just kind of stayed there the, the whole time. And, you know, did that for all of high school. And I wasn't amazing, but I was pretty decent. You know, our wrestling team was a pretty decent team. You know, in our, our senior year, we placed top five in the state and we had a few few, few of our te uh, teammates once uh, placed in the top five as individuals as well. So wrestling for me was a bit of a salvation and, and, and it saved me to a certain degree in terms of giving me some outlets to um, get better at something and to learn. So, yeah, that, I did that and, you know, you go through life having fun doing that this that and the other and then so now we're getting close to the end of high school and my uh my dad ends up uh getting another restaurant because the first one was doing so well he wanted to buy another one and expand it to a two restaurants so the second restaurant he ended up opening up in a hotel and he was under the impression that it was going to be a very big one but it wasn't a very big hotel and he was kind of scammed a little bit and eventually opened up the restaurant and um, it didn't do well, lost everything. Um, had to shut down the first one, sell it. And eventually we lost our house and we had to move into the hotel that the restaurant was in. Um, so we were living in the hotel for quite some time. And this was after I graduated high school and I was started to go to university at UT Dallas. And um, as you can imagine, when you're dealing with all those things, I, 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 was, I wasn't studying. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was drinking a lot and I was doing some stupid shit. And, um, you know, I'm living in a hotel, you know, a couple of rooms down from my parents and uh, eating in the restaurant that I'm trying to work at, but no one's working. Like there's no customers. So I'm eating there. <laughs> and um, yeah, and just kind of bumming around really didn't really have any direction in life whatsoever going to bars and just drinking and just being, yeah, being useless, really. I wasn't doing anything productive. And my brother at the time, uh, he, he had moved back after graduating from university. And then, um, you know, we were just kind of together for a bit. And he had a girlfriend that lived in Vancouver at the time. So he's like, hey, man, because uh, my parents, they ended up selling everything. And then they packed everything up and they, they had a place in India. So they just sent everything back to India. And they moved there. And my brother and I, um, I was um, maybe around 20 around there my brother's about 23 and we got a u-haul truck packed our shit and just drove to vancouver and um got here still lost still pretty messed up doing all the things that i shouldn't be doing right partying drinking and being a, a young kid that really didn't know what he was didn't have any purpose or direction so that happened that was going on for some years um and then eventually my dad my parents came back and we're, we're all living in a basement suite together, our entire family. And, and mind you, I'm like in my twenties and my brother's, you know, in his twenties and my parents are there because we just couldn't afford anything. <clears throat> and um, so my brother at that time is like, look, I'm out man. I gotta, I gotta figure out how to make some money and do these things. So he was really into the music industry and he was a DJ and he did all those things and, and he did a lot of music production and he, he ended up moving back to England. And he ended up getting signed by a record label and, and uh, was doing music production for them. And he ended up in, in, in the Indian music scene, the British, UK, uh, Asian music scene. And then he also transitioned to Bollywood. So he, he actually became very, very, very successful in the field that he chose. And um, so he did that. And I'm still bumming around back home. Right. I didn't know what I had no direction. I'm working. I think at the time I was working on like blockbuster video. You know, <laughs> I was just uh, just doing, you know, just trying to make ends meet. Right. And my dad was uh, supremely disappointed in the person I was. And for me, that was pretty tough. And uh, and he didn't know what to do with me or how to help me because he didn't know what to do himself because he was in a bad spot himself, right? And the only thing he could think of was like, just join the military, right? And I was like, okay. So I went to a recruiting office and spoke to them there and they saw my high school grades and whatnot. And they're like, Hey man, you can, you want to go to RMC and RMC is the Royal military college in Kingston, Ontario. And it's, you know, it's like Sandhurst or, or West point. Right. And, um, I ended up getting in, <laughs> I, you know, I, I ended up going there and, um, you know, I, I was on track. I was studying military and strategic studies and I was on track to be an infantry officer. And, um, but my mental health wasn't squared away at that time. Like I, so throughout my life, I had anxiety and depression issues. Now that I, at the age I'm now, I know that. And, um, I had, I didn't have really any coping mechanism other than booze and doing stupid shit. So the military didn't help that environment. And, uh, at that time for me, cause I wasn't ready for it. And, I, I washed out, man. I was, I was there and I, I didn't really study and I did my phase training. I did, you know, my phase training for, for infantry, but, um, the academic stuff, I was just, you know, drink, I would drink, I would, 
you know, sleep all day and just be in that depressive state. And it got pretty dark at some points, you know, Padre would come in and check it on me sometimes. And um, so I was in a bad spot there. And then, so I, I, I ended up getting washed out. And then my parents at that time were living in Vancouver and my brother was in England. And I, I couldn't uh, face anybody because I, I washed out, right? So I couldn't go back home. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I ended up being, I was homeless for a little bit at that point as well. So like I was, I ended up renting a place, but then I didn't have any money. So once that kind of went out, I, I was working at a bar as a doorman. And uh, one of the DJs was like, Hey man, I got a, I got room. You can stay in a room and it's a bunch of, it's a house with like a bunch of guys. Right. So, and a bunch of guys that really aren't getting after anything, you know? So um, I was like, man, I, yeah, cool. I, I need a place to stay. So I ended up crashing in this spare room that hadn't been cleaned in probably two years. Right, and The house hadn't been cleaned. It was just a hot mess. And um, I was staying, I was living there for a bit. And then I was like, man, okay, uh, enough's enough here. I'm just, um, I'm not doing well here. I'm drinking all the time. I'm, you know, I'm not moving in a positive direction. Nothing's working. I need to go back home. So I called my parents and I was like, I need to come back home. So I ended up coming back home tail between the legs you know kind of i need some help and my parents helped me out gave me a place to stay and um gave me a safe environment where i can focus a little bit more and maybe get go to school so i started um slowly but surely moving in a direction to kind of get an education so i started going to school once i started going to school then i I saw opportunities to start working in law enforcement and it started kind of squaring some stuff away, but not everything. You know, I didn't really realize, you know, how terrible the anxiety and depression was. I was still coping with alcohol, but to more of a binging state rather than a regular state. And um, so anyways, I ended up uh, getting a job as a, as a um, CBSA. So I'm a Canada Border Services Agency, a border and immigration um, officer. And I've been I've been doing that for 18 years. And the first, you know, once I got the job, everything started kind of getting better and, you know, moving in the right direction, getting married, having a kid. But I still hadn't squared away a lot of my issues. I just kind of masked them. Right. And um, I, uh, you know, eventually, i.e. the pandemic before the pandemic kicked off, um, my wife and I were going through issues. And, um, you know, I wasn't a good husband. I was cheating on her and I was, you know, drinking and I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I thought I was a good husband, but, you know, obviously I wasn't. And so she wanted nothing to do with it as she should not have anything to do with it and um, filed for a separation and divorce. And that's when I was presented with an opportunity to reflect on my life and then because the pandemic gave me that time. And um, I took the opportunity to unplug and reflect on my life and where I was and what and how I was unhappy with who I was. And I wanted to be, because I knew I was a good person, right? Like I, I, I know I'm a good person. And it was just coming out in negative ways. Like I was, look, man, I, my, my mental health was just manifesting a lot of garbage. And um, so I wanted to do better. And I, I came to the realization, I just wanted to be a better person for everyone around me. And I started with that sort of mantra. And I just started moving forward in that direction. And um, over the pandemic, 
I mean, I was not good because I was uh, living in a basement suite. Lost, you know, I um, took ownership of the divorce, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't damage my ex-wife any more than I already had. So I wanted to make sure that things were fair for her, and I didn't want to argue much at all with um, the end result of the divorce. And I wanted to make sure my daughter had a nice house and all these things. So we made that happen. Now, how did that end up for me? Well, it was a blessing for sure. Financially not, but I think in the long run, it's been a blessing because I was able to reflect and then also work towards trying to be a better person and understanding what was actually affecting me. And that's when I started to run. <laughs> and it's, the rest is kind of history from there, I suppose. Well, before we get to to that phase, you have an interesting perspective that I haven't really, I don't think I've had on the show yet, which is the Canadian border. I've had people, you know, on the U.S. border, um, hearing about some of the you know, horrendous atrocities that are happening either side of. What, and without, you know, whatever you can talk about, what are some of the commonalities or lesser known problems that we're experiencing from the North, either leaving the U.S. or coming in? So from my experience, I've worked uh, 18 years at CBSA, Immigration and Customs. It started off my career. So 9-11 changed everything for our, our like for everyone, right? And at the time, um, CBSA was called something else. It was Canada Customs and then Canada Immigration. And it was it, the organization wasn't really a law enforcement agency. And after 9-11, everything changed and they started trying to formulate and create a more of a law enforcement presence and uh, gave more authorities to us and changed, you know, branding and arming. And a lot of things happened over 18 years. In the first five years, we weren't like when I started my job, I didn't have I wasn't armed. And over over time, those things changed. Now, for me, my experience was. um, My experience was more of. Like my first three years, I did more customs work, which is managing or trying to interdict the flow of goods into the country or when it's exiting. And then I, I transitioned to to about three or uh, three or four years on on a like an enforcement team where uh, we would be focused on either internal conspiracies at the I worked at the airport, so we would be focused on internal conspiracies at on on the ramp, and then also for outbound checks for uh, proceeds of crime legislation you know, narcotics, things of that nature. I, I did that for a number of years. And then after that, I um, I didn't know much about immigration at the time because everything integrated. So we, we, we had an opportunity to learn more. So I wanted to learn more of the immigration stuff, which is managing the flow of people into the country and exiting the country. So that, that's when I started really developing more of the skill sets in terms of immigration and seeing things from that perspective. Anyways, long story short, I eventually started uh, the last so many years of my career. I've been a canine handler and I've been doing that now. But the similarities, I can't, I mean, it's hard for me to describe the similarities. I'm not too, well, I mean, the similarities between the southern border and our border up to the north, very different, right? The risks are very different, but doesn't necessarily mean there aren't any risks, right? And the, the risks from the southern border are obvious, right? You know, the drugs coming in, but there are drugs coming into Canada as well that are, are, are funneled to the U.S. And then also the 
the um, firearms from the U.S. are funneled into Canada through that means, right? So a lot of the shootings and whatnot aren't coming from legal gun ownership in Canada, obviously, like the U.S. It's uh, all from illegal gun ownership and all the guns that are being used for, well, not all, most of the guns that are being used for illegal activity are from the U.S. That's where they're coming from. Um, But um, I can only speak to the specifics and I had difficulty with... um, working in that environment because I had no control over a lot of things. And, you know, at the beginning of my career, that was cool. But um, towards the end of my career, which I consider now is in the end of my career, I'm transitioning out and, and focusing on other things now. But towards the end of my career, I, I, I was just disillusioned at the end of the day. And for me, I didn't feel I was making much of an impact. And for me, I didn't feel I was valued as a member of the organization. So I just, for me, found it more positive and more, um, it's a more positive way of dealing with things was to leave and not be part of the organization and not negatively speaking about anything or anyone or whatever. It's just, um, I'm a different type of person now that I think it's just not the right spot for me. I don't want to be in an environment where I'm affected every single day by my mental health. And, and so I guess that would be a similarity for the Southern, like for, for members in, in, in um, USCBP or uh, the similarities are that I, I can't speak to the actual similarities of the job itself, but the similarities were all the same in terms of a lot of us feel the same feelings, right? Disillusioned. Are we making a difference? Does, is it helping and all these types of things. And for me, I, I felt I wasn't making enough of an impact. I had a guest on the show, Tamir Naj, who's Hungarian, but she was actually trafficked, in her case, sex trafficked to Toronto. Were you ever exposed to that dark side, that industry? Yeah, so child pornography, uh, human trafficking, um, Drug interdiction, swallowers, burst drugs and you know those types of things when people swallow. So I've seen a lot of that. Um, also with the immigration work, there's a lot of interviewing of people that I probably would have never had. So I've interviewed or investigated people that I feel very fortunate to have had those opportunities. Like, you know. Then the reason why we're interviewing her and um, questioning people that may that aren't Canadian citizens coming into the country is to determine whether they're admissible or not, to see if they're allowed. And I w- I was fortunate enough to have had certain experiences where I was called upon on various occasions to take over examinations or assist in examinations based on my skill sets. And you know, for me, there's only really been out of 18 years a handful of times I've been actually exceptionally proud of the work I've done. And those have been times where I've impacted the people that I've been talking to. Right. And um, in scenarios like you're talking about providing the guidance and assistance that they need so that they can support themselves and help themselves get out of those environments have, have been amazing. I remember one opportunity I had with a, this one man came, was coming, he was a U.S. citizen, actually. He was coming up to Canada, and he was married to a Spanish citizen. But they were in Canada on permits to work. And um, 
So, you know, they had legal authority to be here. And while they were here, they had a kid who was born in Canada. And they were going through some issues. So she ended up taking the child and kidnapping the child. And so anyways, he, long story short, he had left Canada and they, they weren't living here anymore. And he ended up, she ended up make, filing a complaint towards him saying he's, you know, a false complaint about, you know, he's coming to Canada. You need to remove him or he's trying to steal my child. Some things like that. Right. So he had an active warrant for his arrest. And when he came into Canada, I ended up talking to him <laughs> and um, I saw the warrant for arrest and I had discretion on it. So I wanted to talk to him to find out what was actually happening. And through that conversation, I realized, oh, wait a second, this guy needs an opportunity to kind of come in and, and maybe figure a few things out because maybe what's happening isn't actually accurate. So I, I gave him the proper documentation to enter for a period of time and allowed him to do that. And, then, you know, that was the end of it. I just thought, okay, whatever. I'll get Maybe a year later, I was at work and he was traveling into Canada. And coincidentally, he had just come into the secondary examination area where I was. And he saw me and he was with his parents and his child. And man, um, the happiness he had on his face, man, and the joy that he had was like pretty awesome to see. And uh, he thought he was never going to see his kid again. And now he's able to see it. And he ended up talking to me about what, what ended up happening. And, and you know, the ex-wife ended up getting arrested for kidnapping. And all, you know, all the things kind of, you know, got squared away. And that's one thing out of 18 years I remember that I felt I made it a positive impact. Out of all the other things, like I've, I've arrested people and drugs, this, that, and the other. But for me, man, that one thing was like probably one of the best things I could have ever done. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> no, it does. Absolutely. And I think that's when you said about the the organization not being the right fit for you anymore. I mean, I, I ended up working for four fire departments and the last one was very much that I just tried for five years to make positive changes and it just, it wasn't going to happen. I've, I've spoken to people I've been gone for four years now and they've told me it's, it's just getting worse still. So um, I think that's an important perspective as well to identify that sometimes, you know, you're try you're there for the right reasons, but a lot of these people are shackled by the bureaucracy and the devolution of some of the organizations they work for, that the actual mission has been lost in the the fluff, as it were. And I think that traumatized me as well. Like I was I was an active member of the union, and I was I was I was. Uh, I was in the management of the union and I was presenting things on a regular basis. And, you know, maybe it's my ego or whatever. And I thought to myself, man, if I can't fix it. It ain't working. <laughs> it ain't, it's just, you can't, I could be wrong and I probably am, but for me, it's just, I couldn't, um, I just, I just can't do it anymore. So you're in this profession for a long time, and you know, I'm assuming that you're probably being kept busy and therefore distracted from some of the things that were still unaddressed. And then the world grinds to a halt. So can I walk me through, you know, if, if it was the jarring element of that and then the metamorphosis of where you are now? Absolutely. The pandemic gave me the opportunity to reflect and take the time that I needed to take care of myself. Now, um, did I know that at the time? No, 
<laughs> I was like, holy shit, what's going on in my life? Oh my God, I'm getting divorced and I got nothing going. Like, I feel like a loser. I'm a piece of shit. Like, I was just beating myself up. And my anxiety and depression got worse because I was beating myself up even more. And I have a, I don't, look, I have a self-worth issue that I'm working on and um, a self-love issue that I work on constantly. And um, that I'm more vocal about now as opposed to before because before i'd have an inflated ego and that would perfect me and i'd say go fuck yourself i'm good right but the reality is i wasn't and so i i did take that time but what i how i took the time was by um look i i uh, i as you can probably imagine i'm very f- active you know i i lift weights every almost every day i was training jujitsu almost every single day and um and, you know, when the pandemic kicked, the restrictions kind of prevented me from those outlets. And those were, you know, fitness was the only outlets I had to kind of manage my mental health. And I took alcohol away because I wasn't drinking that time. I was like, look, I'm, I know if I start drinking, I know what's going to happen. So I made sure I just committed to myself that I wouldn't even drink, right? Just for that time frame. And even now, I maybe have a beer here and there, but nothing crazy. And um, so I made that commitment to myself. and. Um, and I was really depressed. I was, I, I was having extreme difficulty regulating my emotions. I was crying very frequently and I would, um, get angry, um, on, I get very angry on certain, uh, situations. So whenever I felt I wasn't being valued, whenever I felt I wasn't being heard, I would get very angry and it would come out uh, vocally, right? And um, so I knew there was something going on and I started seeing a psychologist and we started kind of just managing just the divorce stuff. I hadn't really addressed anything else. And um, so because the pandemic and you know, jujitsu for me, I know I need to connect with people. Otherwise I get really depressed and I get in my own head and, and my, I start thinking and thinking and then it goes down a spiral and it gets real bad. So I knew without jujitsu, that was going to be a problem. I needed to find something. And I also at that time I wanted to improve myself. So I had started reading and I wasn't much of a reader before. And this is when I started kind of reading more and I, I started like rabbit holes on podcasts and, and Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink and uh, David Goggins, Candy, like all these different types of people you would start just kind of listening to. And, and I went on a pretty massive rabbit hole with Jordan Peterson, watching a lot of the lectures. And, and then um, I got extreme ownership. I read that. And that's what helped me take ownership of the marriage and all those things. And um, I, I got Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins' book, and I read the first two chapters, and they resonated quite a bit with me. And um, I started running. I hadn't ran since high school. Um, like I, I, uh, and I, the, the, the common theme in the book, at least the one I got from it, was like do hard things, right? and go towards the difficulty right so i took that as i misinterpreted it as oh do physical things um now i i see it i interpret it much differently now but at the time <clears throat> i interpreted it as oh he's saying do hard things i think running is hard so i'm going to do that i hate running haven't run since high school let me do that so um i started running i didn't really kind of have any idea what i was doing i had no frame of reference of what was good what wasn't good so i just kind of just did monday wednesday friday 5k three times a week and i would do that and it was difficult and it was hard and um you know my timings were what what they were 35 40 minutes or whatever 
And, but for me, I just kind of stuck to that because I noticed it was keeping me somewhat distracted. And, um, and I have, uh, when it comes to fitness and working out, my mind works in a certain way where I want to get into the weeds of things. And then I want to really understand how I'm functioning in that process. And then I'll break things down and like, I just get into it. Right. And, um, you know, I started doing that and I set up a goal to keep doing that. And then within about a month or two, I was like, you know what, I want to be able to run 21 K and do a half marathon. And I, I, I just did it. I, I didn't want to do a race. I just, I want to do it. So I went in and, and I did it and it wasn't pretty and I did it and it was hard. And, and that was the first time and no one told me to do it. No one forced me to do it. Nothing. Right. It's just a thing I did. And that I felt probably better than getting my blue belt because um, like I hated running. <laughs> I hated it. And I always avoided it. And I pushed myself to continue doing it. And I was like, oh, that gave me something, right? Made me feel good about myself. No one told me to do it or whatever. So I did that and I kind of stepped grinding away. And then through the process, you know, I'm listening to Joe. I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast because I love the guests that he has. He has some pretty interesting guests, and I, I've learned a lot from listening to these. And um, I heard Cam Hayes on it one of the times he was on. And, you know, I know that he's in his 50s, and when he's training for an ultra, he does he runs about a marathon a day. And I was like, yeah, fuck, that's nuts. I want to do that. So I started thinking, I didn't, because I didn't know that was even a thing, right? I didn't, like, I was so in my own world. I thought I was a badass. Who, what am I going to learn from anyone else? You know, that kind of thing. And when I started opening up my mind, my mind to other opportunities and other ways of getting better, I saw that. And I was like, holy shit, okay, that'll push me to get better. Let me see if I can do that. So I set up a plan or a goal to be able to run uh, a half marathon a day. So 21K a day. And I set a schedule of uh, 11 weeks. I'm oh, sorry, 10 weeks. And on the first week, I started with 11 kilometers a day. And I did that every day for a week. And then the week after that, I went to 12. And then progressively, every week, I added a kilometer to it until I got to 21 kilometers a week. And I was working full-time, going through the divorce. Um, I was running the dog. You know, I was doing all the things. And at that time, I was still doing jiu-jitsu. And I was still, no, not jiu-jitsu. I was still running and still lifting weights. So I was doing all of them, right? And, um, and mind you, the 21K wasn't fast. I would just do them, right? You know, maybe two and a half hours or, you know, whatever. And, um, that, as soon as I ran the 21 K in that week, I was like, I can run across Canada because that was, this was it, that was a direct connection to that for me. And the reason why I came to that realization, I'm not sure I'm, well, I'm pretty sure you know who Terry Fox is. You know who Terry Fox is? I do. Yes. Yeah. Cause as, uh, I, I didn't until somewhat recently where someone had posted a story and showed the statue of him and then you actually read about it you're like oh my goodness you know we have these adaptive heroes now but here was this man 50 years ago forging a path so he's my one of my inspirations and he was 22 years old right and he was trying to he created something called the marathon of hope he wanted to run 42 kilometers every single day to run across canada on a prosthetic leg and back then, as you know, the prosthetics were not good. <laughs> and um, he did it without fanfare, without social media, nothing. And his goal was to raise a dollar for every person for cancer research. Um, he died halfway through the run. Uh, he made it halfway through Canada. 
And to this day, it's been 40 years, he's raised a billion dollars in his name for cancer research. So um, that's important because that's what I would like to hope to try to achieve one day for mental health. But let's get back to the 21K. So once I realized the the, the 21K, then I thought I could run across Canada because Terry Fox ran 42K a day. I could run 21 in the morning and 21 in the afternoon. I could do that. I could do that. So then I started continue training, and then I, I set a goal for myself to run 100 kilometers to raise money for um, veterans and uh, RCMP members with PTSD. And on November 7th, 2021, I ran from the per, uh, Pacific Regional Training Center of the RCMP in Chilliwack, British Columbia, to the Vancouver Airport, and that's uh, 100 kilometers. And I ran that in just under 15 hours and raised $21,000 for the charity. And... Um, <clears throat> That, man, a significant paradigm shift in perspective, November 8th. <laughs> like, um, everything changed. Everything changed. Everything. And mind you, I was still extremely depressed still. Because after 18 years, most of my friends, uh, well, I don't talk to, we don't talk to a lot of my friends that I've had for 18 years. are kind of doing you know they're living their own lives and they have their own families and they're doing their own things and and so that sort of comfort has not been around but what i've gotten out of that is um so anyways after the 7th of november i was extremely depressed i was a bad spot um i didn't really know what to do with my life after because i just done this thing and fortunate for me i'm friends with a guy named seb lavois and uh i know him well yeah, and he, I've known him for about four years, and and um, awesome, awesome guy, and I've learned a lot from him, and I made some amazing connections through him, and one of the connections I made was Sean Taylor, and Sean Taylor and Seb Lavoie are friends, and I met Sean Taylor through Instagram through the running endeavors I was doing, and I didn't have a clue who he, who he was until he started following me on Instagram. I'm like, who's this guy? So I started tracking and I, I went to his Instagram account. I'm like, oh, okay, here one operator, uh, warrant officer, blah, 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 all the things. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Right. And for me, I know what that is. I know. And it's a JTF two. And for me, I know what JTF two is. And unfortunately, 99% of Canadians don't know what JTF two is and hundred percent of Americans don't. So JTF two is, um, well, not hundred percent, let's say 99.99% of Americans don't. JTF2 is the equivalent of the Navy SEALs. And Sean Taylor is a plank holder, and he was one of the first people selected to be on the teams when it was created in Canada. So it's pretty exceptional. At least that's how I saw it. And um, I was like, holy shit, man, I want to talk to this guy. And the reason why I want to talk to him because I felt so alone. I felt like I couldn't relate to a single person. And um, I thought maybe I could relate to someone like that. So I just took a shot in the dark. And he was coming back from Haiti with Seb. Um, they were on a trip down to Haiti for work or something. And um, Sean lives in a town called Rossland, BC. It's in the mountains. And they were coming back in around December. And uh, there was uh, his, his flight got canceled because of the snow. So he, he put up a story on his Instagram saying, hey, I'm looking for a place. I'm going to go grab a bite. Anyone around want to go and join, right? So I, I was at work at the time um, and I messaged him and go, Hey man, I'm, I'm done work. You want to go grab a beer? And he's like, um, no, but we can grab a coffee. 
And I was like, cool. So um, we ended up meeting at a mall close by, and he ended up getting a bubble tea. And then he got me one too. So I owe him still for that bubble tea. <laughs> and uh, we ended up talking. And I was very emotional. My emotions weren't, I just couldn't regulate them very well. And we were talking for about a half an hour. And then that half an hour turned into about three hours. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many conversations you've had with Sean, or if he shared these things or anything. But uh, well, he we actually had three because uh, we did. We recorded the first episode, and then he came back and was like, "Can we redo it?" Because as yeah. you know, he's very analytical and very precise. Yeah. So we yeah. did another one. Awesome conversation again. He's like, uh, "I think the next one will be even better." So we ended up doing three, like two, two and a half hour conversations. So, so okay. yeah, I'm, you know, okay. probably more familiar than some people with the story. Okay. So he, um, he saved my life. Uh, he, uh, he ended up zoom calling me or I asked him, I asked, could I talk to you, man? And he's like, cool. So we ended up zoom calling each other for a couple months, every single, almost every single day for a couple hours a day. And, uh, he helped me a great deal. And I don't, I don't say that lightly that he saved my life. He straight up did like honestly he did and through our conversations he helped me realize what my purpose in life is and he helped me kind of turn down the white noise and um made it easier for me to make decisions as to what i should do with my life anyway so having said that he performance coached me out of the mindset that i was in and i ended up uh deciding to really go all in with what I'm doing. And so after, you know, we, you know, discussed things and, you know, he helped me out. And then now we kind of bounce ideas off of each other and with Seb and we kind of just as a group of guys kind of shoot the shit. And um, so this year, what I ended up doing, because I, I'm kind of a all in type of guy. And so what I wanted to do, because running that hundred K last year was life changing for me. I wanted to do more of it. But I also wanted to learn more about running because, you know, look, man, I that 100K I ran was all grit and will. Like, it was not athletic whatsoever. And so now I what I did for this year was I wanted to learn more of the nuance related to running, nutrition, and all the things around it. So I scheduled myself to do eight ultramarathons throughout the year, starting in March. And then I called it my fundraising season. And my so this fundraising season culminated with the November sixth run of eighty eight point eight kilometers from uh, uh, Chilliwack to New Westminster. And in New Westminster, the charity that I support called Honor House, and Honor House supports um, all veterans, first responders, paramedics, firefighters, cops, CBSA, whoever, with occupational stress injuries. And the house in New Westminster allows members or their family members to stay if people are getting treatment for your cost. And it can house about five families. And they also have a ranch in Ashcroft, BC. And in Ashcroft, BC, it's about 345 kilometers from here. And they're building 10 cabins where they can house these members and their family members and receive cutting-edge treatment and equine therapy and the whole nine yards and the money that I've raised for them this year and that I'm going to continue to raise for them will go directly to them every single year. 
And so what I did um, through the process of um, improving myself, I wanted to help myself, improve myself, become a better person for everyone around me. But I wanted to do something positive at the same time. So if I was going to work on myself and train and do this, that, and the other, I was like, well, let's do something at the same time. If we, This seems to be doing something. So I did all these runs. And then through that process, I started developing my social media. And I started, you know, getting better at trying to do that. And then trying to get better at the YouTube because now we started a YouTube channel and now we got a videographer and now we're doing like, so all these kind of elements have started coming into place. And then I'm like, well, wait a second, what else are we doing here? Well, really the goal is this. Um, I'm not just running to do these ultra marathons, but now the goal is to run across Canada. And my goal was to do what Terry Fox did run a marathon a day, 42 kilometers. But here's the amazing thing with a little bit of grit and determination and discipline is I could do that today. Like, uh, so in about a year, I've trained my body to run about 50 kilometers every single day. Now I could do that. So then that got me thinking with a little bit of Sean's kind of guidance. What else can I do? What else can we do? And how can we create something that can galvanize an entire country around something? Well, one way to do that is try to break the record for the fastest run across Canada. And that would mean running 7,300 kilometers in 66 days. And to do that would be in around 108 kilometers a day. The current record is held by Dave Proctor, who's from Alberta. And he's an amazing athlete. 40, he just had his birthday. He's 42. And he just broke the record in the summer. And he ran all across Canada in 67 days, 10 hours. Now, um, he did it for a personal kind of uh, accomplishment and to show what's possible and to inspire others, which he has. And um, look, and he's a athlete who's been doing these things his entire life. You know, ultra endurance marathon type of guy. Bro, I'm a bodybuilder jiu-jitsu guy. And for me, I'm an athlete. And I just want to see what's possible. I want to see what I'm capable of. And I'm, I want to see if I can do that. Now, I've given myself a five-year plan. We're, we've finished about two years of it. Given a couple more years, I think I can get pretty close to the record, if not break it. So let's say, you know, in 2025, when it kick off to run across Canada, let's say if I get to 80 kilometers a day, well, that's pretty exceptional still, right? And there's something to be said about, you know, working on oneself and in a short period of time, five years is not a long period of time. You can make a massive impact to not only help yourself, but contribute and help whichever way you can to the entire collective. And um, that's what we're trying to do. Or, so now we're, what I've been doing is like, you know, Nims Die is also a, a massive inspiration for me. And, and, and 14 Peaks is a massive inspiration for me. And I saw that movie and I was like, I want to do that. So now we're, we're trying to try to encapsulate that too, because Canada is a beautiful country, right? There's lots to see here, and I want I would love to, for the rest of the world to understand how beautiful it is here, and I also would love to know I would love to have everyone know what kind of amazing people are in Canada. We have a, people like Sean Taylor and Seb Lavois, right? We have our own Jocko Willinks and Leaf Babbins, right? And and I think you know Canadians don't know that they really don't. And there's nothing wrong with going to other people and whatever, but it's, there's something to be said about where you're from. There, there are those people there too. And if if I can play a small part in that, 
trying to force multiply what Sean or Seb, Seb are trying to do um, through running, then, man, I'm all for it. And I feel blessed and honored to have the opportunity to be able to speak to people like you and um, speak to people like Sean and get guidance from these different types of people and having all kinds of people now lift me up, man. Like yesterday, I, yesterday I did the check ceremony for Honor House and I gave them a check for $14,187 for running, bro. Just, and what I'm doing is just trying to help myself and help the community at the same time. And that's not just the end of it. Cause look, global news is a, is a news channel here across Canada and, they did a story last night, right? And, you know, hopefully that story can get out to a few people and maybe some more donations come in, right? And so just by doing something that I, I kind of love doing um, and it's impacting myself and a lot of other people in a positive way, it's like, I don't, honestly, man, I, I don't know. I don't know how to articulate that. I don't know how how to explain how that feels. It just feels amazing. I don't know. It's, it's a blessing that I feel now I can, because it's not just me doing these things. I have people coming around me now that are trying to elevate me, man. This one, I also volunteer at this, the East End Boys Club. It's a boys club in, in, in East Vancouver that, um, you know, ask at risk kids and stuff. And I, I volunteer there and just kind of help out. And, and um, I was speaking to one of the mentors there and, he suffers with, he's had suffered with uh, drug addiction and, and um, anxiety and depression and whatnot. But he financially is a massive success now. And, and he, you know, in, in finance and trading and whatnot. So I had a chat with him over the phone and talked about what we we're doing. And I spoke to him maybe for a half an hour. And he sent a $5,000 check. Like just like, just so for me, it was, so for me, that's a new thing for me. And I'm trying to, maybe I shouldn't try to understand it. I don't know. <laughs> it's just, uh, for me, it's like uh, extremely humbling, man. Someone donating that kind of money um, based off of me having a conversation with him. So then that got me thinking, you know, what else could we do here? Like there's so much could be done to help so many more people. Um, now I'm just kind of engrossed in that now. And everything is revolving around that. How do we make a Netflix movie of tracking what we're doing how do we create a youtube channel that is inspirational motivational and educational and my goal for and to be fair i'll just share this with you and eventually anyone else um i have a goal to have a million subscribers on the youtube channel and and, and that's a five-year plan and i understand like you know you can generate that many subscribers there's a certain amount of money that comes with that and with that money we can funnel that back into the community so now, you know, I can maybe pay myself a certain amount of money and then let's say 200 grand goes towards various different organizations in the local community. I mean, now people who are watching the channel eventually will, will be contributing to their own community if they want. And all they have to do is watch something and learn and they're helping themselves and they're helping the community. So that's my vision for the YouTube channel um, and continuously just doing these running events and running across Canada like a lot of people have been asking me like, Oh, what, what do you do after you run across Canada? Well, running across Canada, isn't the goal affecting permanent positive change is the goal. And running across Canada is a means of doing it. There's always another way to do it. So I'll do something else after, and I'll just keep doing things. 
and keep talking to people and, and keep trying to um, share stories and I don't know, man, just being part of a community. Brilliant. Well, I think it's it's incredible, and to hear you know that you were a very very low. That I mean, you got Seb, who he himself is is you know potentially possibly going to lose a leg, and he's just his mindset is incredible. You got Sean again transitioned out, got into the IT world as a coffee aficionado. So I wonder what his his perception of the boba tea was, but um, <laughs> but you know, so I don't know. It, he, he he asked it, he wanted it. <laughs> So, so yeah, so it's amazing. So I know you have Sashi in motion. So, so where can people find more information on the web and in the social media space? So I have a, I have a website called suchinmotion.ca uh, and pretty much my whole vision is on that website and anyone. So I have a, a GoFundMe that's created that's connected to Honor House. So any donation that gets made through the GoFundMe gets paid directly to Honor House. I don't touch any of the money and any Canadian donation that's made receives a Canadian tax receipt. So, um, yeah, that's the website. You can make the donation. Also, my Instagram is uh, at satch.in.motion. Um, all my sort of fundraising efforts are all done there. And I have a link to the GoFundMe there as well. I also have a YouTube account which starting to upload a lot of the videos that we're, you know, tracking, um, you know, meeting different types of people. It's the journey of me kind of doing this thing will be documented on YouTube as well. And that's again, at Sachin motion. And I reluctantly downloaded TikTok. So I, I got TikTok finally, like a week ago. I know I shouldn't, but I just upload the videos that we've already created on there. So maybe there's another avenue that kids can see that. And if kids can see some of the stuff we're doing, that's cool. And, and, and I'm happy about that. So again, the TikTok is such in motion. And everything in my life now is kind of geared towards building that and, and serving the community the best I can. And hopefully over the next 10, 15, 20 years, we can have an honor house in every city across Canada. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned extreme ownership and David Goggins and the other other kind of inspirations on the podcast side and the book side. Are there any other books that you love to recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I got Building the Elite is the first real book I kind of bought. Building the Elite by Jonathan Pope and Craig Weller. It's the complete guide to building resilient special operators. So that book, um, I have that right here right now. Uh, this one book I just started. It's called uh, The Mind-Body Cure by Bal Pawa. It's a, a holistic perspective on dealing with um, anxiety and fatigue. So, like, just taking your whole body into consideration. And I'm almost finished this one. So I read a lot of books at the same time. <laughs> so I'm just finishing this one, Unfuck Your Brain, a very simple book that you can kind of read uh, by Faith G. Harper. And it's a simple kind of concise sort of handbook you can kind of go through and um, helps with understanding mental health. But um, but honestly, I think the one that really changed the most for me was the extreme ownership. Reading that book fundamentally changed, like the found, created the foundation for me to spring bo- uh, spring off of right now. Um, it helped me own my responsibilities in, in, in my marriage and what I did and how I did them. 
And there's a couple things I just want to kind of say before we kick off here. And I think for me, it's important that I do say them because it's a, um, a massive goal for me because I want to show gratitude as much as I possibly can from people that uh, I feel have helped me. And um, so there's a couple things. So David Goggins, um, for me, helped because I wouldn't have started running had I not read that book. So for me, I have a goal to have one day and I'll make this happen like everything else I have in the last couple of years. I want David Goggins to run 50 K while I'm running across Canada. I want him to join me. And the reason is a few reasons, but the primary reason is I want to show gratitude and give him the gift that um, without that book, I probably wouldn't be kicking off to run across Canada and try and break the record for the fastest run. And millions of people won't, wouldn't, likely have been helped through that process without that book. And um, and so that's one one person I'd love to be able to give that gift to. The second person um, is Cameron Haynes. I'd love to be able to run 50 kilometers with him. Again, running across Canada, because I didn't even know it was a thing to do that. So had I not heard him talking about running 42K a day to train, I didn't even know people could do that. So now he made that a possibility for me and I want to thank him for that in person and, and give him the gift of that I think would be nice. And then finally, number three in 2026, I'll be on Joe Logan's podcast. And the reason why is um, I wouldn't know who those people were if it weren't for Joe Rogan. I wouldn't know who a Jocko Willink was. I wouldn't know who a David Goggins was. I wouldn't know who a Cam Hain was. Um, and I would love to be able to thank him in person to say, hey, man, you know what? Watching your show inspired me to, one, start jiu-jitsu. Two, um, make a positive impact in my community by these types of people. And um, I think that would be an awesome thing to be able to say to someone and thank them in person for being able to contribute um, a positive impact in an entire country. So those are three things that I, I, I want to make sure happen one day. And um, and I'd be ecstatic to make that work. <laughs> Brilliant, they're great goals. Um, speaking of great people, is there someone that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I mean, I would have said Sean Taylor and Seb Lavoie because I've said, I, like I always talk about them and they've been very instrumental in helping me. But having said that, there are a great number of people that have helped me along the way and that um, have been instrumental in helping me. And one of them at the very beginning of my journey, uh, his name is Nathan Kapler. And he's, um, he's a re retired RCMP member. Um, he retired medically, I think, for PTSD. And he has his own podcast called 1033. And uh, he advocates for first responders, uh, mental health, and when I first talked to him, he he helped me quite a bit um, in person and then also through his podcast and also through his um, connection, connecting with him. He, he was just a real good guy. And I think um, he also has a very pleasing sounding voice. So when you hear him, it just sounds calming. Not like mine and, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I, and when you ask me that question, I, I just think about who's helped me over the last year, right? And 
there's been so many people that I can suggest and like, I don't want to take away from anyone else, but you know, he's one of them for sure. Prime, but Paramount absolutely always is Seb and, and Sean for me. I, I love those two very much. So, and Sean Taylor for me, he's my mentor. He's my, my guy. I, I talk to him as much as I can. And I try to get as much guidance from both him and Seb as I can. And because they're pretty exceptional people and they got the experiences that I need. So I, I talk to them. Absolutely. But yeah, Nathan Kaplan, 1033. Beautiful. Well, thank you. All right. Well, then the very last question, what do you do to decompress? <laughs> what do I do? Um, other than, let's, let's not use the physical activity because that's obvious, right? Um, I'll, um, so I, over the weekend, I just was at the Sunshine Coast. Sunshine Coast in BC is like right on the Pacific Ocean. And uh, ended up staying at a friend's house who had a very beautiful place um, on the water. Had a sauna right next to it. So the view of the, like the sauna was like a, like a, like a barrel shape thing. And it had windows on both sides so you can walk into it and you can see everything. And that that's kind of how I like to decompress, man. I like to, I'm not very good at being mindful all the time because my anxiety just kind of keeps going. So when I take myself out of environments and I put myself in those types of environments, I kind of can decompress a little bit better. I have difficulty meditating at the moment just because I don't give myself enough time or patience, but I like to take myself out and go into nature and go on walks or go to the water or hit the sauna and read a book. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. We chatted a while ago now when, when I was in my car, um, you know, it's such a, an interesting um, road that you traveled so far, but like you said, you're now standing at the, the precipice of this, you know, incredible adventure. So I just want to thank you for coming on here, sharing your story and also, you know, thanking the people that are instrumental. I think that's a very, very important element. And I, I concur completely, especially with Joe Rogan. He, he, Tim Ferriss, and actually Garrett Tesla, who's a, um, an American police officer. Them and the original Barbell Shrug podcast, absolutely the reason why I started this, hands down. So, but yeah, so I want to be, you know, just, just thank you for being so generous with your time today. Well, thank you. Well, honestly, man, I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share my story. And I, I want to thank you for creating such an awesome platform that other people can listen to and get some help or guidance or whatever, man, because I think your platform's pretty awesome. And I feel honored that you're having me on it with the likes of the people that have already been on it. So thank you, man. I appreciate you.